Welcome to a Black Man Sketch, episode 19. This is the second podcast since the trial of the century. The State versus Derek Chauvin. Today we have a special guest, our community leader, Melvin Winfield Carter Jr. Mr. Carter actually served as an officer in the St. Paul Police Department for 28 years. He is also the founder and executive director of Save Our Sons. He is well known as the father of the mayor of St. Paul and the husband of our distinguished chair of the Ramsey County Commissioners and the father to amazing, strong, intelligent, trailblazing daughters. Again, we are joined by a um, couple of our Ujama men, Brother Cedric Smith, who you'll recall his voice from last week, and Ryan Delaney, another brother that's been with Ujama for a significant amount of time, and two of our Ujama coaches. Very pleased to have them with me this morning, Darnell Baker and Kenneth Gary L. Gentlemen, this morning, um, We've seen the video, and as hard as that is to watch, we keep wanting to make this trial about Chauvin, but it's hard not to think that the whole police department is on trial here. And I think uh, with you, Mr. Carter, you are uniquely qualified to uh, address some of the issues that's burning in our mind, and primarily because your experience with the St. Paul Police Department. But I'm more impressed with your your development of the program called Save Our Sons. This is a program that um, that's really well known in Ramsey County. And I recall that one of the things that you did a few years ago, that you created these cards for young, to distribute to young black men like what to do if you stop by the police. As a former cop, tell us about your, um, tell us about why you felt there was a need to educate young black men about being stopped by the police. Well, you know, as an African-American male, I, I um, had a lot of experience uh, growing up as such. You know, I've been through all that. I've been arrested at gunpoint. You know, I've been thrown in jail at gunpoint. I've been in, uh, involved in low-level crimes growing up. And I know what I know the dynamics from both sides. And, and I always want to teach. I'm a chronic habitual uh, obsessive mentor. And... Um, that's my ministry. Save Our Sons, for me, is a way of life. People think of it as a program, but it's what I'm sent here to do. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know, I've seen, I've seen time and time again, again, where those situations have exploded and uh, evolved into something that didn't even have to be, and it was always at the expense of the African-American male. Absolutely. And, um, like, 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 my elders taught me how I am who I am because of the elders that came and saw my dumb ass, you know. And and I was and I had all the issues and syndromes and problems. I had I had more issues than Time and Life magazine. I had more false than San Andreas, you know. I mean, brother, I was I was a mess, you know. And and I brought my own issues to the to bear, you know. And so I had to get through that. But but um, I think it's important that we teach our young men how to be strategic and tactical and intentional in everything that we do. Yes. From the time we get up in the morning, you know, uh, and, 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 and how to engage in such a way at a, at a ground zero time when you stop by a police where you make being respectful to you 
necessary and mandatory rather than just succumbing to the, the dynamics of the trap. You know, um, I've seen where um, young men you know, can get baited into a situation that's to their disadvantage. Mm -hmm. But I also see, can, can show young people how to reverse that and, and put themselves in command of those stops and, and live. And so my, I have a goal for young men to be successful, to go home, not to get more um, um, charges, and stay out the hospital and to stay out the morgue. No, no. Well, you know, um, yesterday was day 10 of the State versus Derek Chauvin trial. Again, uh, in your 28 years as an officer of the law in St. Paul, mm -hmm. have you ever seen officers tear down the blue wall like we witnessed this week when we have um, Mr. Chauvin peers, his super, super superiors, come out and say, this was wrong. To uh, continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, that, that, that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. While it is absolutely imperative that our officers go home at the end of their shift, we want to make sure and ensure that our community members go home too. And so sanctity of life is absolutely vital. The defendant violated our policy in terms of rendering aid. I don't know what kind of improvised position that is. So that's not what we train. Uh, have you witnessed anything like that during your career? I kind of chuckle when you say that. You know, keep in mind that for about three years of my career, I was an internal affairs investigator. That, that means that when people had uh, uh, complaints against police officers, you know, my job was to call my office and tell me what happened. During that time, I even had occasion where I got involved in something where I, had to re where, where I got my rights read to me because mm -hmm. of something or other. Of course, I was innocent of all allegations, of course, needless to say. Mm -hmm. But anyway, though, um, I've, 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 I've seen that. And um, I, I'd say in St. Paul, we don't really have a wall because, because the culture of every police department is unique to the, that police department. Mm -hmm. we, we may have had a curtain, and the curtain was often, you know, very, I thought to be the exception of the, rather than the rule in that, um, in, 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 this, in this trial of the century, we see that it's, it's just necessary. You just can't deny what you're seeing. Yes. You know? I mean, there's little risk for, um, Chief Arredondo to come out and say, well, you know, water the wet, you know, fat meets greasy, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, it is what it is, you know. But oftentimes, um, when, when stuff happens, um, you know, there's a, there's the, each, each incident has its own dynamics. I've had the privilege of following, like, great men like uh, Chief Griffin, mm -hmm. Chief Finney, and not to mention many others who just dynamic African-American males who uh, were very particular. Many of us came in as guardians. You know, this protect and serve stuff sounds okay. You know, it's dynamic when you say it. But what does that mean? You know, and then that can get lopsided. But many of us just came in with a heart like Corky Finney to protect our constituency, including African-American, in, in, in a way that's just and fair. And... Um, and, and helps people get through the situation to the best of our ability. Mm -hmm. You know, in that, our culture was what it was. 
I got I got Corky put me in uh, internal affairs because officers knew that when I showed up, you know, you know, this this business of a cheap shot just wasn't going to happen. You know, I've I've gotten into um, situations where I've gotten had physical confrontations in situations that we saw uh, on TV on this situation where um, uh, where officers were going too far. You know, I I think. There's different ways of breaking that. And I think in St. Paul was more of a, a veil, a flexible veil rather than an iron curtain. Yes. I, I really have to think that, you know, St. Paul is a small, a small town. Mm -hmm. For those of us who remember uh, Andrew Griffin and Mayberry, St. Paul I consider is a, is a big Mayberry. Some of the younger guys might not know what I'm talking about. But anyhow, but compared to Minneapolis, you know, we're a small town compared to us, you know. So, so the, the culture is entirely, absolutely different, you know. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I, I've seen things happen over there that I don't think, I, I don't think can happen over here. Yeah. But many of us, like uh, Kenny McIntosh, would show up where 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 a black person was being abused by um, some cops and turned them in, you know. And Corky Finney went on to court and and was firing people for that, you know. And 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 so, I think our presence there for having black people who grew up, black officers who grew up in the city, whose kids had to go to school with the Delaney's. You know, we had to elevate the bar and, and, and be responsible and accountable to the people that we serve because they are us and we are them. And I think I'm probably making an argument for <coughs> the fact that we need to hire some more African American who come from the community, who are of us, who are, have some equity some blood and some sweat and some tears in the community. Yes. It's not just having anything but um, some volunteer in that work. Show us that you, you're more than just a bloodthirsty warmonger that comes from Montana who can do some academic intellectual stuff, but you ain't got no heart, uh -huh. you know? I mean, show us that you got some love for our babies, you know? And, 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 and I'm okay with that. One of the things I used to tell the rookies when they came on, was whatever you do, do it in good faith because you're going to mess up. I, and I just want to say this, just for disclosure. Out of 28 years, this may come to a surprise to you, my community cherishes me because I, mean, I can hardly go to the, 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 the bar and pay for my own rank because somebody come out there and tell me how I saved their life. I don't remember, you know, pay for my own food. But uh, throughout that time, I wasn't always absolutely immaculately perfect. Mm -hmm. I've had, because I, because I, sometimes when I show up at some place, I might just be coming from getting sped on. You know, it called my least favorite word. You know, when people say the N word around me, I, it's a, it's a post-traumatic stress, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a trauma for me, you know. And, and, you know, I, I got attacked a lot, physically, and emotionally. And, and another thing is that, in, in terms of the police uh, culture in St. Paul, I was often otherized. You know, a lot of times I didn't get in on the secrets because people wouldn't work with me for whatever reason, you know. And, and so I didn't really see the, uh, the, the curtain as much as uh, somebody else might. Because one thing, I, they, they would stop when I showed up, you know. And so I think my presence was a breaking of, the, of that veil too. During the course of a week. When the, you gentlemen and staff and we debrief, or we talking about this trial, and uh, we can't help but focus on uh, that this is 
uh, not the issue, but a symptom of the issues as we look around the country. That other videos, other videos have surfaced that that talk about other excessive use of forces that um, that doesn't get this type of publicity. So again, uh, we look at it as that um, when George Chauvin is on trial, but we also see that the police department or the police, the concept of policing in America is on trial. And uh, I think you talked about some of the things that that maybe we can correct that with more hiring and of people that look like the uh, individuals in the community serve. But uh, there's still the image that we have of being over-policed or, or being abused by police. Uh, any other remedies that you can suggest to these young men as we, as we grasp and struggle with this concept of um, being over-policed, being abused by the police, the lack of respect and trust we have with each other? Well, that's one of the things that led me to, to stay my son because I was uh, in the trenches back then. And of course, now at one point in time, I was a juvenile detective in the, in the juvenile division, and then I saw with my own eyes African American males being brought in and kept in situations where they were letting the white kids go, and and our kids were criminalized as um, as doing childish dumb stuff. You know, who didn't, you know? Mm -hmm. I think all boys are stupid. We go through that stage, you know, mm -hmm. between 13 and 26, you know. We just got that shot of the testosterone and our brains ain't developed till we're 26 years old. What does that leave? You know, we got that drive. And some of our rationale for doing stuff, including myself, you know, we did stuff because it was dumb, you know. And, 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 and in our case, I think it's been weaponized against us and, and it's been used to feed, as a feeder situation into mass incarceration. And so, and then at the same time, I, I saw that um, I went to an event, and they and they had elected the czar, the drug czar. I forget his name, McAfee or something. And he and he outlined this big deal how they were going to stop drugs. And I'm seeing, I can see it was a trap for for black kids back then, you know. But also, and then I signed up for officer friendly. Remember officer friendly? And they they they. Um, they chose all white males that didn't seem to be on the same wavelength that, that could communicate with our black boys. And I was insulted. And, and I could see all, this, all these dynamics coming, where, where they're saying the gangs are coming and drugs are coming. And, and against our will, against the will of our, of, our, um, of our elders, without the consent, without the knowledge, guns and drugs were being ushered into our community. One night, on 60 Minutes, I saw where the FBI and the CIA caught each other smuggling drugs into inner city communities, and they both retaliated, well, you're doing it too, you do it too, and they took it off, you know? And so I decided if it's any time for uh, black men to come and stand up on behalf of our black boys, now is the time. And so that's when we started Save Our Sons. And so, um, Say my son gets mistaken often as uh, my program is, you know. I never hawk my program. You know, it's, it's, it's what we do, it's how we live, it's the, way, it's the way we do the things we do, like the temptation says, you know. And uh, I'm looking at my man, and uh, as he explained this, could, could I get you guys just starting the conversation with us? And I'd like uh, to start off with both of you guys talk about, um, uh, as we have seen these trials unfold, uh, how has it psychologically affected you? What is my check-in? If I was to check in with you, talk about your raw feelings today. 
We've gone through two weeks, 10 days mm. of riveting testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your feelings? What's your check-in? Um, just for me, I'm Cedric Smith. Yes. Uh, my check-in would pretty much be, um, I can't put an exact word on it, but I just say that I'm, I am happy for myself and for my community that um, officers and forensic experts as such have come forth and said that the situation was excessive and that the circumstances didn't have to happen the way that they did. Um, I still think that every day of this trial, like our black youth, such as myself, my little brother, were traumatized and were further um, driven into a, a mindset that leads us to fear the police. And, and I don't really feel like that's productive of being able to see the aspect on TV, but I do feel like it's productive to the point where we're able to see that some of these members who are coming forward look like us. Mm. And I think that that's important because some of us, there's jobs for some of us, none of us, all of us, right? And yes. some of us are cut out to, to put on that badge. Yes. And that might not be me, that might not be my brother, but you know, I do feel like, you know, it's a task to be bored by some of us. And I think it's important as our younger generation coming up to see that this wall came down because these people of color cracked it down. Now, if I had to check in and put it to a word, it would be uh, strategic. The reason being is that seeing how this has unfolded the way that it's gone down, it's forced me to realize that I can't be out here and do everything that I would normally do in a way that couldn't be, in a sense, generalized. Because I don't want to be in that position where I go out and I do something wrong and I know that I did something wrong and the police have that probable cause to stop me. So knowing that much, I have to act in a sense to where I would have to think of every step that I make. Being a father to kids, I had to live every day under the fear that my son could possibly go out and end up being caught in the same position. My daughter could go out and be caught in the same position. So in order for me to teach them how to walk in this light, then I would have to step into that light myself. Yes. Yes, and if I, if I could just make one more footnote on something that's affecting me with this trial is, uh, especially with the passing of DMX yesterday, I think that his drug use is being put out too far. I don't feel like his drug use has anything to do with this trial, in my own personal opinion. Whether he was high or not, he died because an officer applied pressure to his neck. And I feel like people, we as people, whether what profession we are, we need to stop looking at what people do as their own personal demons and start looking at humans as humans. Whether a person's high, drunk, whatever, they deserve to go home. Yes. One of the things that I think um, Uh, as one of the coaches here at the Java Place, and we've been intently watching the trial um, daily. Um, And I really thought over a period of time that I would become numb to the video repeatedly. And actually it's been the opposite, where it tears at me harder every time I watch it. Um, Not enough where I want to turn away, because I almost want to feel it. Um, So psychologically that, and then the other day I was speaking to a, uh, prominent uh, African-American male in my community 
uh, worked in our school district 18 years. And I was just meeting with him Thursday evening, and he was telling me about him walking his dog five days ago at 10 at night. And how the police in his community stopped him. And he got one of them little dogs. Mm. And they had him with his hands up, guns drawn. And he's lived there forever. And he was trying to explain who he was, and they didn't even arrest him. It was just like, let's show this authority thing and get back in our car and scare you, brother. That's the disheartening stuff. And again, watching the trial in Tim Lincoln, it's it's psychologically, it's it's on my mind all the time. You want to check in? <clears throat> um, Coach Gary L. And uh, my experience with this trial has also uh, basically brought back a lot of traumatizing events that I've had in my life dealing with the uh, police force and seeing that as I'm 50 now, nothing has changed from when I was 16. And out of respect for my elders, uh, you know, Otis and Melvin Carter and brothers like that, it hasn't even changed since 65. And so it's like it's just a continuous process. And uh, with respect to the trial, I really don't think there should even have been a trial because a human being who knew that he did something like that would have admitted that he did that. And it just shows the more, uh, it just shows the aspect of being more accountable for what you do. And it, it's a real, real good lesson for us to see how far someone will go to defend themselves, even though they know for a fact that they're wrong. All the things that they, they say a drowned man will reach out for anything when he's drowning, mm. to save himself from drowning, even though he's surrounded by water. And it's just another testament to the aspect of Europeans' mind states to where they actually think that they are right. They actually think that they're not wrong for doing brothers and sisters like that, man, continuously. And, and there's a default. I believe there's a default in the Europeans' mind state that makes him think since their birth, since their privilege, since education, and since he looked at the definition of white means pure, innocent, holy, truthful, justice, and then they see the definition of black, meaning everything negative, they're taught from a childhood that we're supposed to do our people like that. Mm. And it just, it's just a, it's just a obvious testament to what has actually taken place in a human being, or what supposedly should be a human being, what's taken place in their, in their mentality, and I can't, I can't relate to it at all. See, and uh, coming back to your moment of traumatic uh, experiences, 2011, I was stopped outside of a speedway and actually told, hey, you know, you match a description of somebody who broke into a car. The description being that I was a black man in khakis, when in reality I was in nothing but blue jeans. We just came back from a bowling trip. I was in job court. Uh, the cops stopped me, the mother of my kids, and two of my friends who happened to be European. Me and my baby mom were the ones who were putting cups. Our friends actually sat outside the car and looked at them and told them they did nothing wrong. But me and her were putting cups. So coming back on the traumatic experiences, I've been pulled over on multiple occasions. And some of the times it was just, hey, you know, you ran a red light. But I don't run reds. I have, my license is completely clean. My insurance is up to date, my tabs are up to date. So if I had a traffic violation and they had a reason to pull me over, it would be something where it was like, hey, you know what? Cool, I understand that, let me take the ticket. 
But it often ends up with me either in cuffs or told you, no, I'm going to give you a warning. And like I said, like we had this conversation a little bit outside of, you know, what our listeners are able to hear. And uh, we also we have a man here who I just met, but I have great respect, respect for, excuse me, um, as a police officer, everything he's done for our community. Uh, Otis Sanders as well, but just from the the fact of policing, I'm I think uh, I don't anoint myself, but I think I speak for most people my age or my generation that a badge represents oppression to us. It represents racism. It represents. It doesn't represent anything positive. It brings. It it makes adrenaline rush through our blood. It makes our bodies shake or our stomachs shrink. It don't make us feel happy. It don't make us feel protected. And I can't name one moment in my life where it did. As we hear these chickens, it's a theme that comes through of this, not disrespect, but this fear of the police department. If it's still like not officer friendly, it's this fear. I'm aware I'm on a committee that's been commissioned by the mayor, Mayor Carter, to look at police calls or when can we defuse situations as we look at this perception or this reality that black men have with law enforcement, do you have any suggestion how we can diffuse this situation? What are the next steps in terms of um, police and African-American community relationships? Well, I'm in awe that this such a thing is happening in here in Minnesota. I remember years ago when I was in the Navy, and people were always surprised that there was black people in Minnesota. You know, and now something like this, with this magnitude happens here. I would, many of us were Minnesota thinking that racism was a Southern thing. You know, well, 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 hello. You know, this is called the trial of the century. I think this is a point of no return. When this gabble falls, nothing will be the same. You know, be it uh, uh, guilty or not guilty. And we will adjust and we will define ourselves. I think that this is a time tantamount to the reconstruction, you know, where our children's and our children's children's realities will, will be based on what we do here and now, mm. you know? And I think we need to be real intentional, you know? Mm. And, and we cannot afford to be, and, and tactical and strategic. And we can't just afford to be angry and knee-jerk. You know, we need to figure out what is the reality we want to set up. You know, what, what would we have had our ancestors do right during Reconstruction? What would we have had the uh, elected officials do? Because we didn't have the cameras we have. You know, we didn't have the leverage. Our ancestors didn't have the leverage that we have today of elected officials and, and in the same context and cameras and technology. And plus, uh, people are learning now. We know how, we know the Constitution. You know, if this, if we don't get justice this time, you know, you can just take the, con the Constitution and, 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 and give it to Sherman. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you said that yeah. because it does. I'm, don't quote me. I'm not a history, you know, I don't got it all. But it does say, if, I believe, if we as a people don't see this system to be just, then mm. it's our duty and responsibility to overthrow it. And I'm not trying to start no revolution or nothing, but I'm glad you brought that up, brother. Well, within the word revolution is the term evolution, and, and we need to figure out how we're going to evolve from this, you know. And, 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 and we're in a position now. You know, I mean, during the Reconstruction, we, we never had no black president, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, it wasn't possible. And so we have to figure out what we want and, and be strategic and, and tactical and intentional where we go from here. Mm -hmm. um, what do we want? I think we want freedom, justice, and equality. 
what does that look like? How can we establish that? You know, I once was a, a radical revolutionary. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, my I have two best friends right now who are getting out of prison and who are uh, Black Panthers. You know, and I have one foot in that in 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 that camp, and I have one foot in, in the criminal camp. You know, I mean, it was just a, a miracle that I wound up a, a, a fluke in in happenstance that I wound up being a cop. You know, I mean. It was such a it was such a turnaround from who I was and what I was that <laughs> made my head swim, you know, and um, and so I think that um, we got to figure out what we want and how we want to do it and get and and we have a chance to uh, and, and and something that's really happening that don't nobody want to say, you know, you know, in that you know there's a reason that don't nobody want us to vote. There's a reason why while. Uh, uh, Incarcerated people can't vote, and it's, and it's very much tied into mass incarceration, and that's because we're procreating voters, mm -hmm. you know. And and so I'm saying, so I'm thinking that, you know, history is watching us now. The world is watching Minnesota like never before. Yes. You know what we do here and how we do it here. You know, I mean, and so I'm, I'm saying that I was once a radical, you know, and see radicals oftentimes. Mm -hmm. are necessary mm -hmm. but but how can radicals make the transition from being radical once once we have the leverage to get the desired result how can radicals become um, architects of the future mm -hmm. you know I mean I mean deconstruct policing what does that mean I mean is that to say we don't need policing no. you know is that to say that we don't need um, first responders I mean, and, and there's so many uh, uh, things that, that really work out in the necessary terms of uh, rebellion and demand for change that we need to figure out how to translate that into being architects of the future of our children that we want our children to have, that we can hand down to our children where they're powerful, free, and, and healthy. Yes. We are now looking at this on a scale of generational trauma to where everybody has gone through this for generations. We are reliving the civil rights movement. We've relived it with the last few presidents, not just saying one or the other, but we've lived it through multiple presidents doing the uh, minimum sentencing. If you notice now, marijuana is becoming legal in certain states, but there are still black men and brown men who are still sitting in prison for these minimum sentencing laws in states where, this, where marijuana is legal. Um, I wanted to add to both of you brothers and respond to two things you said in agreement with, uh, yes, the police were never created for our <laughs> uh, protection. However, we know what the Constitution says and what they're supposed to do. Overseer and officer are both similar terms, mm -hmm. if you look at them both. Especially and we selling. Yeah, and if we started with overseers, then we got the officers, we already know what time it was. Um, and out of respect for Melvin Carter, you know, uh, you were saying that we need to start doing things to better our situation. And the first time I ever sat next to a police officer was Melvin Carter. I'm 50 years old now. I met him when I was 47 at the Circle of Peace. It was the first time I was ever in a, a, a safe community setting. No pistols were drawn. I didn't have no drugs. And I could actually shake hands with a police officer. It was the, I mean, I was so impressed with you. Thank you. You and others who were actually in uniform in that Circle of Peace. And I had never experienced nothing like that in my life. It removed that fear that Otis was talking about that we usually grow up with. I mean, they go to the laws. Mama teach us, baby, come on, in the house. Police comes, close the door, you know. 
we're taught that from babies. Mm -hmm. And so to be even, we gotta start bringing our people, man. We just gotta start coming to things like this that you think are square or, or, or uh, uh, not gangster or whatever like that. Well, we need to change that. Mm -hmm. We need to be not gangster and square and uh, nerds or whatever and come in communities like this with circles with people like this that's actually doing something. Mm -hmm. Because these brothers and us, they're connected in ways that can make things happen. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we'll just be rapping. And then just to piggyback off of what you said, something that was so surreal to me, even last week, moving forward, just like on a day-to-day, -day, not day-to-day, -day, but every week, I see Otis often, Darnell, I was just telling him, like, these guys, man, alongside, you know, people like my father, granted, you know, but still, just black men who are successful, man, and you guys, what you haven't served, and save our sons, and what you do for our community, man, I've never been, like, up close to a role model that was black like this. Mm. Like, you know what I'm saying? And the fact that it's possible for other black kids like me and that they missing points in their lives or they not accomplishing things because they don't got that drive or they don't see that it's possible. Because even I struggled with that when I was younger. Like, certain things in my life, I didn't even think that they were possible. So I didn't think that I could achieve this because I didn't know nobody black who was doing that. Yeah. Or who, you know what I'm saying? But mm -hmm. to see you, you guys do what you do and how you do it and the way you do it, like you say, the temptations, man, it inspired me and that's new for me. So it's like a new fire, a new burn that make me want to be like y'all. Just to piggyback off what you were saying, um, when I first met Otis, I was on the SWAT team, you know, and, and I was just a grunt in the trenches. I, I, was, I was just straight, straight up straight. family and there was a time when I was so distraught you know my only um, my only satisfaction was bringing home the, the bread and feeding my family I'd, I'd come home and gagging with anxiety from stuff you know and, and so you, you, got, you ask yourself why you're in the trenches what does this amount to yeah. what's this about you know does it make a difference does it does it make a difference to me if it makes a difference to somebody who is it you know because when you're in the trenches you know there's always that sense of nothingness sometimes you're battling meaninglessness and, emptiness. and, and emptiness and nobody in this and suddenly now I'm 72 and I don't look 72 man but what I'm saying but I'm saying suddenly all this shit amounts to something <laughs> excuse my language but suddenly you know at 72 you're an overnight success you know suddenly I'm sitting up here I mean I mean, I don't got no great uh, uh, credentials, you know. Mm -hmm. I wasn't no, uh, you know, uh, uh, person like your mother. I can say, no. Lolene. Yeah, Lolene. I wasn't, you know, I had no doctor, professor, or nothing. You know, I'm just a brother that come out the trenches, brother. And suddenly, <laughs> and suddenly, suddenly the, the, the history theater is making a, 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 a play out of my life story. So what I'm saying to you guys, to you younger brothers, you know, I mean, s s suck it up. I mean, aches and pains and, and hurt feelings are part of the trench. Man, I, I can tell you, brother, I'm a crybaby. You know, sometimes, sometimes, I, I remember oftentimes just trying to get out the room because I didn't want stuff, nobody know that stuff hurt me so bad. You know, the, the, just be, you know, and oftentimes it's not, because people know better than to get in your face as a, Frontal conf front confrontation, the frontal assault. 
but they'll come behind your back and, and you look up and, 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 and somebody got you, you know, and you don't know who it was and it hurts, you know, and it hurts, man. It aches and you just got to uh, operate in faith. You got to go where the brave did not go. Yes. You got to face the unfeed, unbeatable foe. You know, it's a faith thing, you know, and know that whatever you do, it's about your children. Mm. It's about your children's children's children. It's about what you leave, what you're gone. Yes. A man who stands for nothing will fall for anything. Have uh, completed two riveting weeks of this trial. We have seen the the prosecutor lay out a tremendous case. He's done a good job. He's done a great job. The team has been absolutely awesome, and I think they have um, they have addressed any kind of uh, defensive maneuver that may take place. So as we get into the second phase, again, the tra transparency has been great. This trial of this new millennium had to be televised. The world needs to see how justice is made. But let me ask you as we uh, prepare ourselves for the next assault that will come from the defense. When this trial is over, Daniel, what would justice look like to you? I think like uh, Mr. Carter said, justice would look like it would operate from the heart with equality. From the heart. And I don't mean to make it sound simple, but when people operate from their heart, that's, that's, that's what justice needs to be addressed. Right. What justice would look like for me. When you really have to put some thought to it, I feel like justice was uh, what it would look like. What justice would be that we finally get that equality that we have been asking for. We are now at the point where people have seen us around the world, and they are now seeing what we've had to struggle with being black or brown in America. And so now seeing that struggle, justice would be returning the favor, like not just policing the police or deconstructing police, but evolving what we have for police and finally bringing balance to the system. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Justice for me, I will begin with um, all four convictions. First and foremost, um, justice for me will look like, from that point on, police being able to be disciplined, if not more severely, as equally as other civilians. And I just see justice as us as a community and as a people being able to use George Floyd and other black gods and goddesses legacies as stepping stones for like they said our children you know because George Floyd lived before he died mm. so and I feel like no matter what we accomplish or no matter what your purpose is I feel like justice is when you were able to express that without oppression without any any strings to you, you're just able to live your purpose, black or white. I agree with you, brother, um, that first and foremost, the four convictions, Derek Chauvin and the other three officers need to be convicted. That would be the first form of justice. But then as now, I'm a practicer of restorative justice. And so after they're convicted, it would be justice to see them be taught how to be human, how to know that what they did was wrong how to learn how to do better. I don't know if maybe Derek Chauvin could be a, a teacher of human rights or something later, I don't know, but it needs to be represented not only to them, but to the rest of the world that ultimately what you did was not human. That would be justice to where they actually realize, man, that was wrong. Mm -hmm. 
that would be ultimate justice for me. I pre I, 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 I celebrate you guys' uh, comments, and I learned from them. I'm inspired by them. I also would add to that, uh, not uh, in, I mean, in absolute agreement with you all, I also would, it's amazing how really little power police officers have. The only reason they have that much power is because somehow it happens to be that way by the, by the authority of the courts and so and by the authority of the elected officials and so but that's one way of changing it. But I think that um, one of the colleges, I just read an read, uh, article from one of the colleges, I think in Virginia, has, has passed a resolution that they will give free, not free scholarships to descendants of American slavery. I think as a direct descendant of American slavery, we are continually targeted for failure. Every generation after generation, you know, and, and in my case, it was Rhonda before that, it was Tulsa before that, it was Jim Crow, every generation, you know. And I think we need to be targeted for success just as intentionally as we've been targeted for decimation, you know, in that um, what would reparations look like? What would it consist of? You can't pay me for what my ancestors have been through. Mm. Nobody knows the troubles our people have seen, you know. But I'm thinking that um, free scholarships, and, I, and I, I'm reluctant to use the word free because it, it wasn't free, because our ancestors paid the debt yes, already. Yes. You know, give my grandbabies a, a scholarship. Yes. And, and, and see, you know, between redlining that's happened up in here, do you guys know about this, uh, this housing restrictive government? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we've been, we've been targeted for poverty. Help us to get out of this ever uh, reoccurring trench that, that you always, um, that Americans have always made us get in, that always put us into. Also, you know, I'm seeing, you know, I mean, I'm seeing immigrants and refugees come here and, and get stuff that, that we ain't never got. Mm -hmm. You know, we got, we got, every community's got some kind of community where they have business communities. Help us to be successful in some kind of, you know, where, I, I, when we say little Africa, I mean, what would we call ourselves? Little descendants of slavery? I don't know what, how, to, how to construct that. Mm -hmm. But we, we're the one who's been most deliberately eliminated from uh, opportunities and most specifically targeted for a mass incarceration and so many other ways of discrimination. You know, give us some leverage that, that, that we always try to race with our shoestrings tied, you know, and, and, and give my babies some, some scholarships, you know, I, I think that'd be a good start. And, yeah. and, and apologize. Yeah. <laughs> and I want some reform in the way that we say things, you know. I, I don't, I never return, I never refer to my ancestors as slaves. I refer to them as enslaved. Yes. I never refer to their captors as their owners. Mm -hmm. I reject that, mm -hmm. you know. And, and that language, you know, I think we need to repent for some of our language in so many ways. Now, you ain't own nobody, you know. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Oh, so, so anyway, I, I think reform our language. You know, I mean, our language is so jacked. You know, I mean, you, you know what makes me cringe when they say somebody was fair skinned. Mm. Mm. If you, I mean, what? I mean, is my skin not fair? Huh? Well, you know, this is uh, really gonna kind of conclude. Um, Episode 19 of a black man sketch. I just can't thank uh, you brothers enough for coming in and with this community chat. Um, with Melvin, you know, personally and professionally, I just want to thank you. With no notice, you have been such a champion for you, gentlemen. And you've done this not just from the back, but from the front. And I love your from the front leadership. And I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that after your illustrious 28 year, 
with the St. Paul Police Department, we also celebrating the 25th year of Save Our Sons. Mm -hmm. And this is the strong 25th year. And again, as he mentioned, he don't like to take a lot of the credit for it. But uh, that being said, um, Thank you, sir. what he's been doing is providing mentorship, coaching, case management for his community for young men. And uh, been a trailblazer, sir. And um, this mentoring, uh, we really appreciate that. And again, your role, since we opened our doors, you've been right there, and we appreciate that. And I'm sure you see the inspiration from my new gentleman man and staff here today. So again, I want to thank you for that, and um, and be knowing that as we move forward, uh, we'll be tapping on you again, sir. We love your, your leadership and your voice, and speak from the heart of what we're trying to do here in New Gentleman, please.